0: Revelation, how many are encouraged by what God's Word says? How many are, you know, we don't, we're not afraid of what's going to happen because we're not going to be here, but we are fearful for those that will be here, and that's why, we, uh, that's why we're studying it, and that's why we want to have a burden for those who don't know the Lord. Well, last week we finished up chapter 10, which is chapter 10 and half of chapter 11, that's an intermission between the 6th and 7th trumpet. It's another vision that John receives while he's back on earth. He's not in heaven, but now he's on earth. And we ended it with John taking the scroll and eating it, making it sweet in his mouth but turning his stomach sour. And we mentioned last week that the Word of God is both sweet and sour. It contains blessing as well as judgment. And we just can't pick and choose what we like and discard the rest. I heard someone say that God's Word is not a buffet. It's everything that's in it is applicable to us. You know, how much would our kids love it if we only gave them sweets and candy but never veggies and protein? (laughs) We'd be the bad parent, right, (laughs) if we did that. They would love it, but our parenting would would leave a lot to be desired. We ended with saying, preachers can't give you just what you want to hear but what you need to hear. The Bible actually warns us about that. In 2 Timothy 4, it says, And so I solemnly urge you before God and before Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead when he appears to set up his kingdom. Preach the word of God. Be persistent whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. For his time is coming when people will no longer listen to right teaching. They will follow their own desires and look for teachers who will tell them what, whatever they want to hear. They will reject the truth and follow strange myths. I think we see that happening today. People are following all kinds of different crazy things. So now we come to the beginning of chapter 11, which is basically a continuation of chapter 10. If you remember, when they wrote the Bible, there were no chapter breaks, no verse numbers. Man added that later so we can find things easier. But chapter 11 is just a continuation of chapter 10 through the verse 15. And chapter 11, verse 1 says... There I was given a measuring stick, and I was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the number of worshipers. So John eats the scroll, loves it, makes him sick, is told to prophesy to the nations and the kings. And God now tells him to what? Measure the temple, measure the altar, count the worshipers. And most agree that this, the third, this is the third temple that's gonna be built under the direction and the auspices of the Antichrist, he's going to let him build it. The temple in Jesus' day was destroyed by the armies of Titus, 25 years before this book was written. And Daniel tells us that during the tribulation, Antichrist is going to make a covenant with the Jewish people, and he's going to allow them to build this temple. And he honors that agreement for about three and a half years, and then three and a half years he he breaks that covenant. And yet, Daniel 9:27 says, he will make a treaty with the people of Israel for one set of seven, which is the seven years. But after that, about half that time, he will put an end to the sacrifices and offerings. Then as a climax to all his terrible deeds, he will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration until the end that has been decreed is poured out upon the defiler. So for the first three and a half years, Jews have it good. They build a temple. They go back to the Old Testament uh, method of sacrifices. Halfway point. Antichrist breaks that treaty, starts persecuting them, and now uses the temple. And the Bible basically says he's going to make himself an altar. He's going to worship himself. Now, my measuring something that is indicated in the past that has always indicated ownership. When God's telling the to John to measure this, he's saying he is an owner of that. Zechariah 2, verse 1 says, When I looked again, when I looked around again, around me again, I saw a man with a measuring line in his hand. Where are you going? He replied. I'm going to measure Jerusalem to see how wide and how long it is. Then the angel who was with me went to meet a second angel who was coming toward him. The other angel said, hurry and say to that young man, Jerusalem will someday be so full of people that won't have enough room for for everyone. Many will live outside the city walls with all their livestock, and yet they will be safe. For I myself will be a wall of fire around Jerusalem, says the Lord, and I will be the glory inside the city. So one, one indication of measuring or one in, why they measure is to indicate ownership. God is saying that he owns that city at this particular point. And measuring also can mean it's preparing them for destruction or for pers- or for preservation. Here he's measuring it for the preservation of Israel. God is claiming ownership of the temple. He's claiming ownership of the altar and he's claiming ownership of the worship. And he's measuring the spiritual condition now of the Jewish people. And verse 2 says, But do not measure the outer courtyard, for it has been turned over to the nations. Now, this is what's happening, I think, today. God's telling John, focus on what's happening in the temple where the worship is. Don't focus on what's happening outside the temple where the worship is not. God's house is... Focus on that. The outer court, the Bible says, it's been, it's been turned over to the nations. Another word would be Gentiles. Another word would be pagans. Outside of what God's house is, it has been turned over to the enemy. He's basically saying that. And he's telling John, don't worry about that. Don't measure it. Don't worry about it. Focus on what's happening inside God's house. We see a lot of stuff going on in the world. And it's easy to get our attention drawn on all that stuff to the point where we take our mind off of what God wants to do in here and in our life. Now, it doesn't mean we we live in ignorance, but when the world's going crazy, it's easy to take your eyes off of Christ and look at what's happening in the world. Every time you read a newscast or see something on TV, the enemy wants to take your mind off of what God wants to do, what God is going to do, and mostly that this is nothing new god told us this stuff was going to happen so we should not be surprised at it happening we're talking about walking on water on wednesday night and what happened as soon as peter took his eyes off of jesus he sank storm was still going on he could have completed it had he kept his eyes on the lord and a lot of times when we get distracted by the things in the world we get our mind off of jesus and we start sinking into what the world does and we want to become like the world we want to retaliate we want to make things better we want to change stuff and a lot of times that involves having negative attitudes towards people and towards things and God says no focus on what the Lord's doing in the church what God wants calling you to do don't worry about what's happening outside there's nothing we can do to change it anyways other than pray for it so keep your focus on the Lord verse 2 goes on and says Don't measure the courtyard. It's been turned over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. In other words, the Gentiles are now going to persecute the Jewish people for 42 months. That's, what, three and a half years, the second half of the tribulation. Mostly because as he's measuring their spiritual condition, what's he saying? Their rejection of Christ is causing, God's causing the, uh, the Gentiles to now persecute the Jews because of the immoral practices that they're doing. So this three and a half years we're talking about is actually the second half of the tribulation. It's just as the verse we read in Daniel says, and we read earlier, that he's gonna let the enemy have his way for the last three and a half years. He's gonna persecute the Jews. He's gonna try to to destroy them because of their immoral behavior, the rejection of the Messiah. And this is gonna go on for a long time, for the three and a half years. And then verse three says, and I will give power to my two witnesses, And they will be clothed in sackcloth and will prophesy during those 1260 days. Again, 42 months, 1260, that's all three and a half years. So these guys, these two witnesses are gonna prophesy for as long as God allows them to prophesy in the last half of the the three and a half years. He's gonna prophesy getting people to come to Christ. Now this is kind of the similar thing that happened with John the Baptist. John the Baptist, Came, what? He came in sackcloth. He came to herald the coming of Jesus before he came. These two, these two are coming in sackcloth and they're to herald the second coming of Christ. They're to, you know, obviously get people to get saved. They're preaching the gospel. They're telling people Jesus is coming again, just like John the Baptist does. He said, there's someone coming after me greater than me. These two witnesses are saying, there's someone coming after us greater than us they are talking about the further judgments that God is going to bring before Jesus comes back. They're not taking any pleasure in announcing these judgments. You know, believers, we don't take any pleasure in telling unbelievers what's gonna happen. The Bible even says that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But we should be mourning for those that we know are gonna go through it. And that's the attitude the two witnesses have. Rather than being judgmental, they're trying to tell them what's coming and to be prepared and to get saved through that. When we talk to people about Christ, we share Christ out of a broken heart, not as one pointing a finger at them because they don't know. The Bible says that the enemy has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they can't see the truth. Can you remember back to when you were an unbeliever? When people talked to you about the Lord what was your reaction? You didn't know. You were, you were blinded to the truth until God turned the light bulb on. Remember that when you're talking to people, that they really, you're talking Greek to them. When you're talking about things of God, they don't understand like, like Christians do. And when we pray, we pray that God is able to break through that. We pray that God removes the blinders from their eyes so that the word of God gets in and they're able to understand it I was listening to a sermon the other day that I never really thought about this. And we've mentioned it before, that you know today's the day of salvation. You can't get saved whenever you want to get saved. The Bible says no one comes to God unless the Father draws them. So when you are being drawn by God, that is your opportunity to come to Christ. That means if you're thinking about God at any particular moment, that's God making you do it. God giving you an opportunity to get saved. The Bible says, my spirit will not always strive with men. In other words, God's going to draw you and draw you and draw you. But there's going to come a time where God says, I'm done. I'm not drawing them anymore. We call that the unpardonable sin. You can't get saved unless God draws you. It's not the sin that keeps you away. It's your unbelief that keeps you away. So if you're thinking about getting saved, you're really contemplating it and you think, well, you know what? I'll do it at Easter. No. No. Do it today because you may not, A, may not be here Easter, and B, God may not be drawing you on Easter. Something may come up to keep you away from church on Easter or whatever the case may be. But the only time you can actually come to Christ is when God is drawing you. And you don't have infinite number of times to do that. The Bible says God is long-suffering, not wanting any to perish, but there is coming a time where God says, okay, that's, you know, I'm throwing them enough, no more. we share Christ out of a broken heart because we want people to be saved and we pray that when God opens her eyes someone's there to share the gospel with them now the two witnesses a lot of speculation on who these two guys are but the truth is nobody knows who these two guys are a lot of guesses a lot of educated guesses the first thing we do know is that they are actually two people they're not symbolic they're not figurative they don't represent a group of people they are two individual men the language is clear they're not some figment they're not some ethereal thing going on there's two physical guys who God calls to be witnesses a lot of guesses to who they are the Bible never really tells us but we can we can assume some things many speculations a lot of people think it's Enoch and Elijah because neither one of them really died right they got they got rapture they got translated some folks believe it's John the Baptist and Elijah. Again, you can't be dogmatic about it because it doesn't say. Malachi 4, 5 says, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Could be him. This represents John the Baptist when he was here, but I also think it applies to him in the second coming. Now, if you look later in the chapter, it says in verse 6, they have power to shut the skies so that no rain will fall as for as long as they prophesy. And they will have the power to turn the rivers and oceans into blood and to send every kind of plague upon the earth as often as they wish. When you hear that, who do you think of? Who had the power to stop rain? Elijah, right? Elijah stopped rain for three and a half years. Who had the power to turn the rivers and oceans into blood? Moses. So that's One educated guess. Going to the Mount of Transfiguration, which is a symbol of the Second Coming, Matthew 17, verse 1 says, Six days later, Jesus took Peter and two brothers, James and John, and led them up to a high mountain. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance changed so that his face shone like the sun, and his clothing became dazzling white. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus. Jesus. Good guess them in that it could be Moses and Elijah. But the bottom line is, I think if God really cared that we know exactly who they are, he'd have told us. We can guess, you know, fine. But don't, don't spend all day worrying about who they are. I think God would have spelled it out for us. Because who they are isn't as important as what they will say and what they will do. Verse four says, these two prophets are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. Lampstands, if you remember way back at the beginning of Revelation, they they represent churches. Revelation 11, write down and see what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was the Son of Man. So he's talking about these two guys are representing the church. What is the church's mission? Now what is the church's mission? To seek and save the lost, right? Matthew twenty eight, nineteen. Olive oil represents what? Usually represents the Holy Spirit. Zechariah 4 2 and says, I see two olive trees on each side of the bowl. Then I ask the angel, What are these, my lord? What do they mean? Don't you know the angel asked? No, my lord, I replied. Then he said to me, this is what the Lord says to, to Zerubbabel. It is not by force, nor by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. First Samuel 16:13 says, so as David stood among his brothers, Samuel took the olive oil that had been brought and poured it on David's head. And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him from that day on. Then Samuel returned to Ramah. So you have lampstands, which represents the mission of the church, evangelization. And you have olive oil, which represents the Holy Spirit. So you now have these two guys. Their goal is to simply spread the gospel during the tribulation, the time that they're alive. And they have the anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit to do it. And we're going to see, not only do they have the anointing, and they have a clear message about how to be saved. After they're done, no one's going to have an excuse at that point to say, I didn't know. And they're going to be immortal until they're done. Verse 5 says, if anyone tries to harm them, fire flashes from the mouths of the prophets and consumes their enemies. This is how anyone who tries to harm them must die. Now, you remember back we talked about the 144,000. God sealed them. No one can hurt them until their mission was done. These two, pr- these two witnesses, no one is going to be able to harm them until their mission's done. No matter how much the enemy tries, the Antichrist tries, no one is going to hurt them until their job is done, until the mission that they have been given is done. Like Elijah, they're going to have the power to call down fire from heaven. And like Jeremiah, the words of these men speak will consume them. Jeremiah 5.14 says, Therefore, this is what the Lord God Almighty says, Because the people have spoken these words, I will make my words in your mouth a fire, and these people, the wood, It consumes. These words that they speak are basically the judgments that they're going to face in the near future. God's judgments will be be fulfilled by God's power. It won't be the enemy's power. It won't be the earth. God is going to have the one and the power to put these judgments down. And these witnesses are the ones that are testifying to that. Verse six says they will have the power to shut the skies so that no rain will fall for as long as they prophesy, and they will have the power to turn the rivers and oceans into blood, and to send every kind of plague upon the earth as often as they wish. Again, an allusion to the assumption that these two these two guys are Moses and Elijah, but again we're not concerned about who they are as much as what they were saying. One commentary puts it this way: the author of Revelation is simply describing the vocations of certain Christian prophets, indicating that that some follow in the same tradition as the former prophets of Israel. A lot of folks think that they're just two two other guys, nobody from the Old Testament. It could be just two guys from 144,000. It could be two guys that they raise up that are living at that moment. Again, we don't know. So we wanna focus on what they say and what is coming more than we care about who they actually are. For however much time God gives them to do his ministry, they will be invincible. Verse 7 says, When they complete their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the bottomless pit will declare war against them. He will conquer them and kill them. Why are they killed? Because of their testimony against the sins of the people and the ungodly Antichrist audience that's there. For three and a half years or however long they're alive, Antichrist tries to kill them. He doesn't succeed until... They're done. And they are killed at that moment by the Antichrist. He is the beast that comes out of the pit. The NIV calls that the pit, the abyss. That pit or the abyss is the same one we mentioned earlier back in chapter 9. It says, The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like smoke from a gigantic furnace. So the figure here is of a demonic nature. The same verse that we used in chapter 13 when we talk about the Antichrist. So the Antichrist is the one who kills these two witnesses. Chapter 13, verse 1. It says, And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten hordes, seven heads, and ten crowns on his horns. And on each, one had a, on each head was a blasphemous name. This is identified by the As the Antichrist, by most commentaries, he's able to kill the two witnesses, but only after their mission is completed, not before. You think God is sovereign over the affairs and the enemy can only do what God allows him to do, both in Revelation as well as today. How many know that the enemy only has power that God gives him today? He has power, but only what God gives him. And we talked about this earlier. God's people doing God's will, God's way, are immortal until our work is done. That means if we've done that our life, that when we die, whenever that is, our work's been completed. Now, that's scary, but it's comforting. Sometimes we look at someone who dies a premature death, we think. God's word says, their work has been completed. We think that their work is to go on, but God says, no, it's done. Time to go home. I like what Warren Wiersbe says. He says, God buries his workers, but his work goes on. One day we'll all be in the same position. Our work will be done. Verse 8 says, and their bodies will lie in the main street of Jerusalem, the city which is called Sodom, and Egypt, the city where the Lord was crucified. Going back to what we talked about, how the Jews are being judged because of their immoral character, immoral actions. This verse is saying that Jerusalem, God's calling it Sodom. He's not calling it Jerusalem anymore. He's calling it Sodom and Egypt. So their bodies are laying in the physical city of Jerusalem but the city itself has been given over to sin and being, being given over to slaves of sin. Isaiah said, that, said this to the people of Jerusalem because of their moral decline, just before they were taken away captivity. He says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. He's talking to people in Jerusalem, but he's telling them they're living like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom represented sin, Egypt represented slavery. And so Jerusalem, the Jewish nation, had given itself over to sin and degradation and God's calling that city Sodom and Egypt. And these two prophets were laying in that city dead for three days. This once great city was now a cesspool of sin. So much so that the people rejoice at the death of these two witnesses. The Bible says there's coming a time where people will kill you thinking they're doing God a favor. Look at the cities around us. I would think sometimes we look at cities and call them Sodom and Gomorrah. Cities that were once great, maybe even great for God, are now just... And even look at churches denominations that were once great for God are now Sodom and Gomorrah. Verses 9 and 10, the people were loving this. And for three and a half days, all the peoples, tribes, and languages, and nations will come to stare at their bodies. No one will be allowed to bury them. All the people who belong to this world will give presents to each other to celebrate the death of these two prophets who had tormented them. Every time I read the word torment, I think of Elijah with King Ahab. What did Ahab call him? He was always a troubler. He always gave me trouble. Not because he did anything to him. It's just because he kept telling him he was doing wrong. How many like to hear you're doing stuff wrong all the time? Hey, that's wrong. That's wrong. It's sin. It's sin. It's sin. Well, Elijah was telling that to Ahab all the time, and Ahab called him a troubler. And these guys were calling these these prophets tormentors because they're calling them out on their sin. Now, back then, they didn't have any kind of national media. So, but it says here, all people's tribes and languages and nations will come to stare at the bodies. How's that going to happen? A lot of people think it's television network coverage. People are going to see them via satellite. Maybe people will actually go there, fly over to see them. And they're going to celebrate it like it was Christmas. They're going to give presents to each other to celebrate the death of these two prophets. And that tells me these witnesses must have instilled so much guilt and condemnation on the people that they were being buried under that guilt and condemnation. But no one likes to be told they're sinful and wrong, but God was giving them an opportunity to come to Christ. It's like going to the doctor. We said it before. We want to hear the truth. We don't want to hear them saying, yeah, it's okay, it's okay, even though you're sick. It's okay. You want to know what's wrong, so you can fix what's wrong. The prophets were telling them what's wrong, giving them a chance to fix what's wrong. But no one did. The people didn't want to hear the truth, and just like today, people don't want to hear truth, and they get violent and angry when you tell truth to them. How many I tried to talk to the kids and the youth, and what they experience today is nothing like we experienced before. And you think it's the same, but it's not. I mean, you got this transgender thing. When you look at and when, how, what's, the, what's the phrase you're hearing now through COVID? Follow the science. Follow the science, right? Well, the science, biological fact science says if you're a woman, you're a woman. If you're a man, you're a man. You can't change that. You can have all kinds of surgery, but you ain't changing that fact. And then you look at you look at the abortion issue. The science tells us that's it's a totally different human being in the womb. It is not a, just a chunk of tissue. You see, now with the technology we have, you see pictures of it. You can see pictures. And yet people, they get angry. They get mad at the truth. That's happening now. Can you imagine what's going to happen during this time? When the church is gone, the people that are calling out sin is gone, these two prophets are now gone, the whole world is going to go insane because they don't want to hear the truth. This new Supreme Court nominee, how many heard that? They asked her to define what a woman was. She couldn't define what a woman was. Not that she couldn't, I think she wouldn't. She's afraid of backlash, afraid of the truth. This will be such a big deal that people will think that they won. These two guys are dead. These two witnesses are dead. We can just keep on living like we want to live. Hallelujah, they're gone. The troublers are gone. The people that tormented me are gone. Let's have a party and celebrate that. We can live how we want to live now. No one confronting us with our sin. I was telling the kids today, I said, you know, we're talking about getting a job and all that responsibility stuff. And I said, you know, when you're 18, you, you, know, you, you can go. You can leave. And you're like, yeah, I'm going to leave. So you've got to get a job. You've got to pay for stuff. Everybody wants, to, you know, when you're young, you want to move someplace else. You want to just get out from mom and dad. Until you get out and you realize how bad the world is and you want to go back. And mom and dad lock the door from the inside so you can't come back in. The people here are gonna think, Hallelujah, we have freedom, no one telling us what to do, we can live how we want to live like, like kids when they go to college. I can live like I want to live, no one tell me to clean my room. Well, these guys are gonna think they can do everything they want to do now that these people are gone. They're celebrating like it's Christmas time. And it's exactly how Jesus described his own death. And John 1620 says, Truly you, you will weep and mourn over what's gonna to happen to me, but the world will rejoice. So the world's rejoicing when these two witnesses are killed, just like the world rejoiced when Jesus died. Verse 11 goes on. But after three and a half days, the spirit of life from God entered them, and they stood up, and terror struck all who were staring at them. Now, we don't know how long they were staring at these guys, but it seems there are a lot that were still there celebrating. So you think three and a half days, out in the street, You've got to have some decay going on. You've got to have some maybe animal carnage going on. Then all of a sudden, they stand back up perfectly fine, totally healed. And you know what happened? It says, and terror struck all who were staring at them. So you see three guys or two guys on the, fl- on the ground, dead, three and a half days, probably starting to decay a little bit. Animals are picking at them. Rats are getting to them. And all of a sudden they stand up they are scared to death why are they scared to death because they realize that the Antichrist doesn't have ultimate power he killed him but God was over to overrule that and bring these guys back to life and they realize now that these guys weren't defeated by the Antichrist and God is going to ultimately crush the people that killed him so now they're scared to death. They killed these guys. They realized that God brought them back to life again and said everything that these guys said is gonna come true, so now they're naturally terrified. Antichrist's victory was short, and the people now realize that there's no, they have no match for the power of God. And to put an exclamation point on that thing, verse 12 says, then a loud voice from heaven shouted, come up here, and they rose to heaven in a cloud as their enemies watched. We don't know if any got saved because of that. It doesn't say. Did they remember what these two witnesses said to them? I don't know. Maybe they realize they didn't listen. They don't, they don't know what to do next. And the only thing that's coming their way is judgment. Even today, people doubt the resurrection of Christ. But in this time, there's, there's going to be no doubt of these two witnesses' resurrection and their ascension in heaven. And it seems like everybody who was around them heard that shout from heaven. Again, reminding them God is sovereign and that God approved of what these two witnesses said. Just like Jesus' resurrection was proof that everything he did was true, God validated his life by resurrection. God validated these two witnesses by resurrecting them as well. Verse 13 says, In the same hour there was a terrible earthquake that destroyed a tenth of the city, Seven thousand people died in that earthquake, and everyone who did not die was terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. If you remember, Jesus had an earthquake just following his resurrection, right? Matthew 28, 19, or 28, 1. Early on Sunday morning as a new as a new day dawned, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to see the tomb. Suddenly there was a great a great earthquake. Now this earthquake in Revelation was enough to destroy one-tenth of the city. And 7,000 people died. But now out of that terror and where they saw God pour that judgment out, it appears that some of them repented. Some of them actually, it sunk. It got into their spirit. So yeah, there is hope for those who are going through the tribulation. God wants everyone to repent. And you have some that do and you have some that don't. You're going to see later on in Revelation that many didn't. And the Bible says the road to heaven is narrow; few find it. The road to destruction is wide; many find it. So even during the Revelation time, the majority of people are not going to come to Christ. It's likely that those who did not repent here will become; who did repent here will become martyrs. Because if they know the Bible and they're being taught by these two witnesses, they know not to take the mark. And so what happens in Revelation thirteen fifteen? it says, He was permitted to give life to the statue, this is the Antichrist, so we could speak. Then the statue commanded that anyone refusing to worship it must die. So if these guys are truly Christians, they know they can't worship the statue. Antichrist says, well, they've got to die. And he required everyone, great and small, rich or poor, slave and free, to be given a mark on the right hand or on the forehead. And no one could buy or sell anything without that mark. So again, if, they're, if they get saved there and they know what God's word says, don't worship the statue, you're gonna die. Don't take the mark, you're gonna starve to death. So we figure that if they repented, then they're going to be martyrs during this time. They're not gonna make it out. So now we come to the end of the intermission, which is the end of that chapter 10, half of chapter 15, just getting ready for the seventh trumpet to, a, to arrive. We had the first terror or the first woe, which is at the fifth trumpet. Revelation 9, 12 says the first terror is past, but look, more terrors are coming. And then we have the intermission, the first intermission, sixth trumpet. Now we haven't ended the sixth trumpet yet. We're paused during, that, during this intermission, and we're gonna see in the last verse, that it was brought, the second terror, to completion. So the intermission's over. John is reminding everyone that there is now one more terror in verse 14. He says, the second terror is past, but now look, the third terror is coming quickly. So at this point, the sixth trumpet is officially over. They had the sixth trumpet, they had the intermission, and now the seventh trumpet is getting ready to be blown. But we're gonna get to that one next week, Lord willing. Scary, it's almost like a science fiction, end of the world type of movie. But when you read it, you know it's true. You see things happening today that you thought would never happen 20 years ago, 30 years ago, but they're happening now, which means I'm convinced that our time is short. Whether it's my generation or the generation that's young people now, that it's coming. And we have to be ready for it. And the Bible says, as we know that the rapture is coming, we purify ourselves even as we are pure, the Bible says, which means we keep, you can't slack off. You can't just sit back and coast. There's always work to be done. There's always things that God calls us to do. And there's always ways that we're supposed to live in order to show others what Christ is like. And I was telling the kids today that not only did they have to you know, they're young. And I said, you know, King Josiah was eight when God made him king. So just because you're young, we, our verse was, don't let anyone despise you because of your youth. And I said, just because you're 13 or 18 doesn't mean God can't use you right now. Right now. You don't have to wait to be an adult to be used by God right now. So that when you're in school, whatever, God can use you right now. Don't miss that opportunity. Don't wait for five years to figure out that God could have used you five years ago. God can do great things with you in your youth. And on the other end of that, God called Moses when he was 80. <laughs> so both ends of the spectrum, as long as we're still here, what if we say? If we're alive, then we've got work to do. We have the ability to change someone's life. Maybe it's one person, maybe it's 50, but you have the ability to change someone's life by introducing them to Christ so they won't have to go through this. And not only that, they'll have the joy that we have now as Christians, right? We, we enjoy being Christians. We have someone we can go to when things are hard. God's always faithful to us. We wouldn't give that up for anything. People don't understand that yet until they come to know Christ. And we have the ability to share that with them. And when we do that, how many are glad that someone shared that with you? <laughs> glad they're going to be equally glad that you share that with them. They may not like you at first. They may not accept it at first. But when they hear it and they keep hearing it and they see, they see your lifestyle backed up by what you say, that's the important thing. When they see that, then they're going to want what you have. Would you stand as we close this morning? Resurrection Day is coming. Hallelujah. If it weren't for Resurrection Day, none of us should be here, would be here. Or if we would, it'd be futile, the Bible says. I'm just so excited for what God's doing. And the more we intercede, the more we pray, I believe the more God's going to do. The Word says God does nothing except by prayer. I've heard several examples of all the things that God wants to do. But you have to ask. What the Bible says you have not because you ask not. And he says when you ask, you don't use these things for selfish means. You use them because you want the glory of God to be seen. Prayer doesn't change God's mind. Prayer just allows God to release what he's already got for you. We know the Bible says God wants all to be saved. We know that God says he's our provider. We know that God says he's our reconciler. And the Bible says we are to be persistent in prayer. Persistent in our understanding of God's word. And the more that we do that. Now, the Bible says there's not going to be one big great revival until the revelation time, but I think God can break out little revivals until then. And I think that's what God wants to do here. But revival doesn't start in a church. It starts in a person. Each person pray, Lord, revive me. Revive me. Then the next person prays, revive me. Then the third person says, revive me. And then what happens? Revival breaks out. And God can do tremendous things as we pray and believe. So let's do that. Father, thank you. Thank you for saving us, Lord. You were long-suffering with us. You were long-suffering with us. You were persistent, and people prayed for us persistently. And we are grateful for both the prayers, and we're thankful for your long-suffering. But now we're on the other end of that, Father, and we pray and we intercede for those we know who don't know you. Pray, Father, we pray that you would get into their life and you would save them in Jesus' name. We pray that the power of God would fall in each one of our lives personally. That you would revive us. That you would continue, as Romans says, renew my mind. Give me the mind of Christ, Clausians. Give me your mind. Give me your heart. Revive me. If no one else is revived, Lord, revive me. Revive each one of us here, Lord. Our heart's desire is to honor you, to be about your will. And we pray that you would give us that opportunity. We pray that you would send people to us, send us two people, allow us to have divine appointments so it set those up for us. That the Holy Spirit equip us for those times with holy boldness and the word of God ready on the tip of our tongue that you put there so we're able to talk to people about you. Help us to be effective in the work of the kingdom. When our time is gone, Lord, that's all we're gonna take with us. So we wanna use everything we have now so when that time comes, Father, we have spent it all. Our time, our efforts, whatever resources we have, We don't want to leave anything behind. We want to put all of our effort into it. Because the time we spend there, Lord, is a lot longer than we're gonna spend here. And we want to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. So Father, I pray your blessings upon each person here today. Allow each one of us to experience that, that inner revival. That God, you put that excitement in us that we just can't wait to read what your word says. We just can't wait to take time to pray and then we just can't wait to see how you respond to that. So Lord, I commit each person to you here. Fill us, use us, and allow us to see the power of God working in response to our faith and prayers. The Bible says it's through faith and patience that we see God work. So Lord, give us both of those. We have faith. Sometimes we don't have patience. Help us to have both. And when we have both, we will see the power of God working. So Lord, we ask all these things for your sake, honor, and glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. 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 God bless you. Have a great week. See you Wednesday night. Maybe not see you Wednesday.